Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. Thank you for joining us in our podcast today. We talk a lot about refugees. 14 million people have left Ukraine as refugees, almost one third of the population. Also, the southern border of the United States is accepting or <laughs> allowing refugees to stream in to this country. It's never been like this since World War II. These are people who've lost their homes in a war or who have been evicted, and they're looking for a place to live. Well, today my guest is a former refugee from Estonia, going back to World War II. She's a very dignified and caring woman who lives with her husband in St. Louis, Missouri. I have been acquainted with her and her husband during my pastoral ministry, and actually more than 50 years ago. And her name is Irma Faulkner, and we're so very happy to have her on our podcast today. So welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. You are a person who's filled with so many stories of separation, escape, survival during World War II. And we would like to have you share some of those stories with us. You and I have common points of interest. As I said, you are a Estonian, a native Estonian, who speaks the language fluently. And, and before we get into talking about you and where you're from exactly, I'd like to say a few things about Estonia. Estonia is a little country on the Baltic Sea, across from Finland. It's a very small country, population of 1.3 million. Area size that's about equivalent to Vermont and New Hampshire combined. It had been part of the USSR from World War II until its independence in 1991. And in 2004, they became part of NATO, they became part of the European Union. Also, before we go to Irma, in my ministry, Estonia is one of the countries that I have worked in, and I have traveled there many times. So, I would like to have you, Irma, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you originally from? And let's get going with it from here. All right, thank you. Uh, I was born in Estonia. My parents owned a farm, and I was born right on that farm. We were maybe, I don't know the mileage or the kilo, kilometers from Tartu, which is one of the uh, locations of University of Tartu in Estonia, and we're south of that, uh, or our farm was south of that. Tartu was a place where we stayed a lot of times, and we had a group of people that met there. And not in the capital of Tallinn, but Tartu, which is the second largest city. So uh, that's where you are from. So tell us how you got from there. Now let's start the journey to the United States. Uh, how old were you when the war started? Maybe I shouldn't ask that because that'll give away your age. But well, <laughs> that, that's all right. That's all right. I was well. I'll start with the uh, when we actually left Estonia, which was in August of twelfth of nineteen forty-four. Being on a farm, my parents felt that we wouldn't really be affected by the war because we were farmers and we didn't. Uh, get into politics at all and thought that we would be just ignored, but that was not so. The German military had been occupying Estonia and they were retreating and the Russian communist element was moving towards the border of Estonia and 
according to my parents, it looked like they were moving into Estonia. And so they felt that it was prudent for them to move move from that farm and not, not stay there in case the Russians did get close to our farm. And so they decided that we would get out of there. However, because we were so late in leaving, most of the railroads had been bombed already, and this was in 1944, so the war had been going on, and railroads were bombed, so we couldn't use a train, and the ships were no longer going to Finland or Sweden, so we couldn't use that. So my dad hooked up a horse, one of our horses, on a, uh, a wagon. So we, were, we started to travel with our horse-drawn wagon. And this is how we, we left. Dad and Mom put some food that we had prepared. Mom had baked bread, and so we had bread, honey, butter, and a little bit of smoked meat. And that was, and some blankets. And so the children sat on the wagon, and then the, the adults walked. It was Mom and Dad, and I have a sister who was 13. My other sister was 11. I was seven, and my brother was four. And so we sat on the wagon, and that is how we left our farm. Going, was it drawn by horses, you said? Yes, one horse. We um. just took one horse, and this is how we traveled. And we were going on the side of the road because the German military was retreating, and they were going on the um, on the road and so we didn't we didn't have room to be on the road so we were in the ditch kind of or, or on the field and traveled that way and that is how our traveling started out towards the west just simply to get away and the reason that my parents wanted to get off the farm and move was because in 1939 the communist element took many of the leaders of the country, like the religious leaders, the teachers, anyone of authority, they would they took those and shipped them to labor camps and they divided the families. And so my parents didn't want us to be separated and that was the reason that we left that way. So all leaving here, there's uh, three, four children, Yes. And your two parents uh, with one horse and a cart. And the idea was to go all the way to where? To Germany? Well, go until we were, we felt safe that the Russian front was not following us mm -hmm. so that we would be going. And by then, my grandmother and my two uncles decided that they wanted to come with us. There were other relatives that felt, where do you go? And they even asked my dad, where would you go? You don't know anyone out west. And my dad answered to that, well, the world is wide and we'll just keep going. You know, that is amazing for your being in a rural area, probably not having traveled out of Estonia. And here you're just sent out into the world not knowing where you're going. That must have been a terrifying feeling. Well, with as a child, as long as I was with my parents and the rest of the family, 
I felt I was okay. I was safe. If I would have been alone, it would have been a lot more terrifying. But having my parents and the rest of the family with us, I was just comfortable. I figured it it was fearful to think about if we stayed. So the other option was to go with the family. So you left Estonia. You left home towards Germany after D-Day, you know, which was in June of that year. So this, right. was, this was getting close to the end of the war. It was, but you'd never know that the war was over because the planes were still flying over us. The mortars uh, were still going. There was a lot of shooting and bombing going on. We were traveling. We started to travel west, and then uh, we traveled this way through Latvia and Lithuania until we reached Poland. Okay, so and, that, that was the route that you took, uh, headed yes. south, south. And so we reached Poland, and in this particular place, we were all together with the other refugees from the other countries now, and the German military wanted our horse. And Dad said that was our only means of transportation so that he wouldn't give it or sell it, but uh, they didn't accept my dad's no. So they did take our horse, and then we, uh, they paid dad something. I don't recall, and I didn't have it written down just exactly how much dad got for it. But from then on, we started walking towards the west. Sometimes the farmers that would see us walking would offer to give us a ride from one location to another. But most of the time, then, we relied on walking. So I suppose when you see some of the video of what's happening in Ukraine or even other parts of the world, you can sympathize, empathize with them. Absolutely, absolutely, totally understand. And by then, by the time we got to Poland or even before that, our food was pretty well gone. And so we relied on somebody giving us some food. And of course, that was difficult because even though we would stop at a farm, they had so many refugees by now. You had Latvians and Lithuanians. Um, you had Polish people and, there were, and, and the Estonians who didn't use other transportations before. And they had so, there were so many that people didn't have the food to give. So hunger was always with us. And we traveled this way until till December when it got real cold. And then we, this was near Czechoslovakian border that we found an empty house. And so we just stayed there because the people that were living there obviously had left, and we stayed there, and uh, my uncles and my dad looked for a place that where they could work so that they would be able to get some money and to buy food. Now, the, that was another, uh, you could buy food, but you had to have a permission card from the German military to do so. So it wasn't like you would go to the store because you had the money and you could buy. But if you didn't have that card, 
you couldn't buy it anyway, even if you had money. It was like a ration card of some sort? It was like a ration card, but you had to have that in order to buy, but you still needed to have the money to buy as well. It's, it's just amazing how there's any semblance of any kind of economy of making money, earning money, spending money, you know, with, yes. with a war going on like that. Yes, it, it still, there was always directions and directives, what we could and couldn't do, and, and sometimes uh, the uh, German military would just tell us to stay in a certain spot until they, they moved because they were still retreating, and we were probably in a way, I'm just thinking this, that we may have been in the way, but this is how we traveled. You know, Irma, just, one, one thing I'd like to ask right now is, uh-huh. you know, you were living in Estonia, which was an independent country, right, at that time? Yes. Okay, and here you have the Germans who've come and occupied Estonia for probably three, three, four years or so. And, right. And and then the Germans are retreating, and you would almost feel like, good, they're leaving. What made you so fearful of the Russians? I, I know we can see how oh, the sure. we can see how the sure. we can see how the Russians are so ugly, would, ugly right now in the way that they're treating people. But what what was your thinking? Because in 1939 there was a um, protocol or agreement with uh, Molotov of USSR and Rippentrop of Germany, the Third Reich, in the Eastern Europe was kind of divided so that Estonian fell to the Soviet Union control. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was established that Soviet military bases would be established in Estonia. And the, they moved quickly to get control of, of the people. And so what they did in 39, or perhaps it was in, in 41, one, I'm trying to recall what my parents told me. What they did, what the Russians did, was a ship. They actually moved in that night and took out the leaders in any community, like the mayor of the city, the or or uh, certainly the religious leaders, the uh, teachers anyone that would may be of influence in any way at all and those people were the families were separated and the men were all sent to labor camps mm-hmm. and in order to avoid this my parents felt when the russian front now was moving closer and closer to move into estonia my parents felt that this would happen again and to avoid being separated as a family, they decided it was time to start moving west. You know, Irma, you're telling this story uh, makes me emotional even as I listen to you tell this story because I had not really heard it in such detail because my parents both had been in Ukraine in yes. when the Germans had uh, come in and invaded in Barbarossa. But they left in 1942, uh, a year after the invasion, and then they were yes. ta- they were they were taken to uh, work in Germany. I'm reliving some of what I had come to. Then my parents, 
they were married after the war, and I was born in a refugee camp, actually, myself. Uh -huh. But it's amazing how our lives come out and how fortunate we are and how many were unfortunate. And here we are. I'm just thanking God to breathe, you know, to, to be here. Absolutely. And, and saying, God, what do, you, what do you want me to do? What's the purpose, you know, of all this? But it's just wonderful to hear your story. So now you're in Czechoslovakia or, or in Czech Republic. We live, yeah, near, near Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. There was an empty house and we just moved in. Dad and, and my uncles were able to find work that they would help out and get some money that way. The only food that we really were able to get was uh, some white bread from the bakery. There wasn't much other food available. I know we had coffee grounds that Ma made coffee using the grounds at least twice and then took the grounds and we had some wheat berries that uh, they took the rock and ground them up to make the flour and mm -hmm. the mom mixed the flour and the coffee grounds and made pancakes so that was what we ate it was the the hunger was really great for us in that house to to find anything to eat so that was one of the meals that we had and the amazing part living there we stayed for several months, but then towards spring, when my dad and uncles came home and said the Russian front started moving again towards us, towards the area, we had bread that we had rationed so that we could just each have so many slices and no more for, the, for a day. After we heard that the Russian front was coming closer, we all lost our appetite, and we were ready to, to move on just from the fright of thinking that the Russian front was closer. Mm -hmm. And because they had machinery that they were using, the cars and so forth, the trucks, military equipment, they were moving faster than we could move on our feet. Mm -hmm. And so we were rather slow in our, our moving that way. And uh, we felt that we needed to move out of there. And uh, so we did, but that's why we just knew that we needed to move. And we didn't have the food to, to eat before, but now they said we could eat all the bread we wanted, and none of us were really hungry to eat. So you have you moved now into Germany or still in the Czech, Czechoslovakia? We have moved into Germany, and our goal was now to reach the American zone. Germany was d divided, and you probably knew this, it was divided into a uh, section was American zone, a uh, section was French, mm -hmm. section was controlled by Germans, and a section was uh, controlled by the Russians. So uh, they were, and our goal was to re reach the American zone. Yeah, my parents uh, were in the, Russian zone, and they okay. escaped to the British zone. Okay. And lived in, uh, Mag well, they started in uh, Magdeburg, and then went to their, they went to a United Nations refugee camp, where they lived mm -hmm. for four, four years. But that, they were in the British zone. And so you, okay. you now are moving through Germany, headed for the American zone, probably towards Frankfurt area. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. 
So that's how we started moving, and uh, we were still traveling on foot because our transportation was gone, and there were some kind farmers that would give us a ride uh, for whatever miles, but because we were on foot and the, the Russian front was on, on machinery and moving that way, they were always, always very close. Mm-hmm. And the fear of us getting caught, they even had speakers. If we were going through a small village or town, they had speakers saying that whoever is fleeing, don't be afraid. You come back and we will take care of you. And of course, we we were not believing them. Still, and we still don't believe them. They are no. So, so the Russians actually were passing you by and actually broadcasting or through speakers this message to you to here we'll take care of you. There were some that would through. It wasn't the whole military front, but there were some. Yes, that went through, and they would ha- put up loudspeakers so that we would hear not to be concerned about that. And so you were already disbelieving of it at that time. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that to see Ukraine, it just all comes back. Mm-hmm. Even though I was a seven-year-old child, well, by then I was eight. My birthday was in September, so I, by then I was eight. Oh, this is, this is an amazing story. So then you continued on foot, and where did you get to now? We got to the where the camp had been established for displaced people in Augsburg, Germany. Mm-hmm. And so we were assigned to two, two rooms. Actually, it was a two bedrooms and a kitchen combined, a lot better than we had for the past year. And so we were assigned that to live, and they, the American military uh, the, actually, Eisenhower was in charge at the time in uh, of the military in that uh, displaced persons camp. We were assigned that, and the Red Cross gave us some food. So we already thought we were way ahead than we had been for the past year. Now, what was the approximate date that you made it to the American zone? Well, it had to be a year later. It was in 1945. In, in August? Uh, yes, because it was a year later that mm-hmm. we finally arrived to Augsburg. Mm-hmm. I think it's amazing, you know, as difficult as it was for you, how many good people there were along the route and people who helped one another. And, yes, and the miracle we felt as a family that when we did live through bombing, that none of us got hurt or killed, none, none of us in the family. I remember many times at the end of a day, wherever we spend the night, that my parents thanked God that we were safe and were not hurt, which we could have been, and many were, mm-hmm. but we weren't. That is an inspiring story of God's protection over you. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, so we established then our, started living again, and uh, Dad, of course, felt he was the supporter of the family, that he would try to figure out what he could do. Being a farmer, he didn't have many trades, and so he met a man 
who was a shoemaker in the camp. And he thought, well, he could do that. So he learned the trade from this man, and he started making ladies' shoes, young ladies who were dating the American GIs. And the American GIs would give them American cigarettes to pay for the shoes. And the, the American cigarettes became like a, a, a trade. You didn't, we didn't have money, and so we would trade with that. I remember Dad sending me to the bakery. I would have two camel cigarettes, and I could get a loaf of bread for the two American cigarettes. <laughs> it's amazing how it became a currency. <laughs> yes, yes. So I, I remember that well. That in Augsburg, I would go to the bakery, and then he used it for others. He went to the farm to, to get eggs and milk for us with the American cigarette. It was a means of trade. So then you are there, and you're a de displaced person, uh, and <laughs> what did you do then? This is you stayed most of the time in Augsburg then. Yes, we did. Okay. Uh, we still felt that there had to be more more between us and the Russians. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted, my parents wanted to come to America. However, the Americans would not take families. They wanted like adults, uh, couples, they would take couples, but they felt like a family would be a burden to the taxpayer so we weren't able to go there and and that was true for like New Zealand England Canada other countries that they wanted adults not families mm -hmm. however talk about blessings there was a man who owned two farms in Iowa and he was of German descent. And he would come back every so often and come and visit Germany and visit his family. Uh -huh. And he visited the camp. And so when he came back to the States, he checked into the Lutheran church who was sponsoring some of the refugees. And he offered to take a family so that they could work on the farm and live on the farm in Iowa. Mm -hmm. So the through the Lutheran Church, they just happened to, I don't know the details, and Mom and Dad didn't know the details either, but the camp did contact us and said that they would take our family and we would be able to come to the United States and Dad could work on the farm and we could live on the farm. What a huge blessing that was. What a story. What a story, Irma. This, this is just really, really a wonderful story. It, it, it Well, it, it just, uh, I don't even have words to describe the feeling that they, when they said they would take a family because my parents were pretty discouraged thinking that we just wouldn't be able to, to uh, get away and have an ocean between us mm -hmm. and the Russian communist. So what year was this that you came to the U.S.? Well, in 1948, the mm -hmm. Congress Congress passed a Displaced Persons Act, and uh, President Truman signed that. And through that, we were able to come in January of 1949. Mm -hmm. We were able to leave the camp and come to the United States. And we arrived in Boston in, in January of 1949. 
By ship or by plane? By ship. Yeah, the Atlantic is pretty rough in January, I can tell you that. <laughs> well, my parents came in July of that same year. So. Hopefully, the Atlantic, did they fly? or? or no, they, or... they took a ship to Ellis Island <laughs> in, in, in New York. But yes. My mother was pregnant at the time, and she was very sick, oh. sick on the whole flight, <laughs> on, on the whole journey over. Of course, of course. I was a, I was almost two years old. So this is an amazing story about how all of you, a family of six, was intact with the Russians advancing, with the bombing, with the German retreat, with all the different things that were uncertain from day to day and how they would work out, that you all survived intact as a family. Yes. I, to me, it's a total miracle. A total miracle. So then you came to Iowa. Where in Iowa? Near Mason City. Mm -hmm. It's a little town called Rockford, Iowa. It's mm -hmm. very small. I knew two words in English. Thank you and hello. <laughs> so it was uh, it was challenging. And they put me, well, I had missed a lot of elementary school because of the war. Mm -hmm. So they put me on the last half in January, last half of seventh grade. And I had missed several years of elementary education. So not know, only knowing the language, but missing the education as well. Uh, it was a, a challenge with a capital C. Mm -hmm. Well, you sure have learned the language well, and you become totally proficient and don't even have an accent. Oh, well, it, I don't know about that. My children catch me at certain words. <laughs> <laughs> They still do and say, oh, mom, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> so then did you have uh, connections or communication back to Estonia with family that you had back there? The, it, the, the letters usually were not received by our family. We, uh, there were people that, well, the letters were just either returned when mom would write to see if there was anyone that survived the war, mm -hmm. and they would return it and and just not acknowledge it, because mm -hmm. uh, Russia occupied Estonia at that time, and so uh, there was someone in a, in an Estonian that started a uh, paper newspaper in Estonian in New York City, and so by word of different Estonians that. Uh, we heard that the paper was available and people would post notices that they were looking for a relative. Mm -hmm. And so there was one man who wrote, and this uh, dad recognized his name. He wasn't a relative, but he had been a neighbor to us in Estonia. And so through him, we got connections to to find out if any of our relatives survived and little by little and of course uh, when um, Estonia became free again then we were able to write but until it was under Russian control we really had very very little communication with our families they just returned the letters so now we are in Mason City area or Rockford Yes, uh, Iowa, and this this is all very interesting to me because my first assignment in the ministry was in Mankato, Minnesota, 
which included okay. the Mason, which included the Mason City area, uh-huh. and of course yes. I lived in Sioux Falls at that time. That was the church circuit, and I believe uh-huh. that that's the first time that I had heard of you. How did you uh, come into the faith? And tell us a little bit about that phase of your life. Okay, sure. Um, I would I would take well after I got married and we had children. I would take the children to Sunday school. And then when I came home, I found out that my husband had been listening to Mr. Armstrong on the radio. And I walked in with my children. I I just told my husband that I felt like our children should have some religious education. So I, he didn't mind if I took him to a Sunday school. So I did. And I, when I came home from Sunday school and church, my husband would say, well, if you found somebody like this man, Mr. Armstrong, that talks on the radio. And by this time, he ha- he had requested a, a magazine called The Plain Truth and was reading that, and he told me that if, if I found a man that talked like that in the local area of Iowa, he would go to church with me, but he just couldn't go along with some of the teachings of going to church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so then we kept going like this, and then I'd come home, and he would uh, find a scripture in the Bible and say, well, you're doing this, but the Bible says something else. And I would read it, and I told him, I never saw this before. And so I would read it, and I think I told him, I said, well, I just haven't seen it. Nobody ever told me about this, but you're right. So I agreed with him. So he kept go, pointing things out in the Bible, and every time I read the Bible, I agreed with him. Mm-hmm. So then I started reading the plain truth, and we started uh, listening to the radio. And I think it was Garner Ted some of the time, Garner Ted Armstrong. And we listened to that, and then my husband asked for a visit from a minister but they must have been so busy at the time. <laughs> we never did hear a minister. And I was expecting uh, our son. And this was in the early 70s. And there was a lot of civil unrest. And we were living around Chicago area by then because dad kept getting laid off with the farming uh, job. And so we moved to Illinois in between time near Chicago because that neighbor said, well, if you don't find work in Iowa, there's plenty work around Chicago area. And that's how we ended up in Chicago. And so getting back to the church, my um, husband requested for a visit from a minister. But in the meantime, with the civil unrest that was going on in the late 60s and early 70s, we said, we really would like to raise our children more in a rural area. And so we moved to Lanesboro, Minnesota. And then we still requested the literature from the church in Pasadena and kept reading that. And the more we read that, the more we were convicted that we had been wrong in keeping Sunday instead of the Seventh-day Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And then there was, uh, we received a letter from Pasadena that there was a a minister uh, speaking in Charles City. But anyway, he was speaking, and anyone uh, interested hearing him was welcome to come. And so we went 
And that's how we got in the, uh, acquainted with the church. And little by little, we, uh, we were living in Lanesboro, and we found out that there was a church that we could attend. This was several in several years, actually. Um, but we could attend in Rochester, Minnesota. And so little by little, we proved things in the Bible that what we had been doing was wrong and we needed to change and do it what God said in the Bible. You uh, became part of the church and that's how we got to know each other. Uh, that is right. Yeah, so that that is extremely interesting how people are brought together. My mother too became part of the church. And you, I'm certain, uh, Irma, that you have given thought to what all this means and how this impacts your life and you've seen freedom over here and you've been part of oppression and you see it happening again. What observations can you make for us in dealing with adversity? Our people in the United States know nothing about adversity, real adversity, and here you have gone through it and there's no way to explain to somebody who hasn't gone through it just what it's like. But what types of things should we be thinking for preparing our minds? What concerns me deeply that so many Americans take it for granted of all the blessings and the abundance of food, even though it's pricey, and but there's so much to be thankful for. And it appears to me that more and more of this nation that they're turning their back to God and not looking to him to obey him, that they're, they're just turning and ignoring it because this life is so good. They're not thinking about where my food is coming from or any of that. They just seem to be ignoring God and that, that concerns me deeply. Well, I think that we are seeing that right now even after this midterm elections that have just taken place. The lack of gratitude for all where our blessings have come and just yes. all, all the complaining. And we have so much more freedom. We have so much more food. We have so much more of everything. And we don't appreciate it. That's exactly how I feel, that we can't be grateful for what we do have. Uh, if you look around the world, you know, we have it so well compared to so many other nations. Mm -hmm. And just a thank you to God. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. you would even be delighted to hear that from where we're at right now. I'm, I'm afraid, though, that things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. And some of what you had gone through, what my parents had gone through, will come upon some in this country. I think so, too. I really do. I'd, one bright note I'd like to add that uh, my parents and I, our whole family, did become American citizens in October 12th of 1955. And so every year on October 12th, my, my parents and I would call each other and congratulate each other and thank God that we have the privilege of living in this country. Well, that was so wonderful. I know that I became an American citizen when I was in second grade. That was, <laughs> that was uh, let's see, I cannot sure exactly what year, but probably about 19, about the same time, 55, 56. Yeah. Uh, I was in second grade, and I remember my second grade class throwing a big party for me. 
<laughs> oh, yes. It, it was a very special thing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Anyway, then you, well, one more thing I'd like to add. I, Estonia is a, <laughs> is a language that's not spoken by many people. There's only 1.3 million of them uh, in Estonia and probably not more than a million outside of Estonia. And it's a complicated language. It's a language that's understood by very few people. And yet we have had people who have been very interested in it. We've had literature that's been translated. Uh, tell us about your involvement in some of the translation work. Well, I worked with uh, Mr. Lambert and then also with Natasha from the Home Office mm -hmm. in Cincinnati. I worked with her. And uh, right now, I guess I'm not needed at the moment, but maybe down the line I will be. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because they will hear this podcast. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so no, hopefully I, that I can be of help some other way. Johnny Lambert has so valiantly continued the work over there, both in the Russian language and in the Estonian language. And of course, Natasha, Natalia, as she wants to be called, is uh, okay. very much the manager of our Russian-speaking publications. And she does an outstanding job. Yes, I have been, I've tried to stay in touch with her regularly. Uh, another thing that uh, uh, I didn't even remember uh, that the Uni University of Tartu has a special division that they uh, are very technological in that uh, their education and the University of Tartu was founded in 1632. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that it was that many years back. Yes, and they have a uh, statue to Gustavus Adolphus, I believe, outside the college or the university uh -huh. there in Tartu. It's kind of a landmark, but uh, Tartu is the home of the largest university in the Baltic Republics. Yeah, it's so I'm learning too, because obviously uh, I had uh, not had much education in Estonia as such, mm -hmm. but and I was very fortunate. My mom and dad died when they were eighty-eight and eighty-nine, mm. and so I had and we always lived together. So I was able to speak with them and not forget the language. That's great. I, I'm so thankful that I too was able to speak Ukrainian at home because the parents insisted we do that. They said sure. we would always learn English on the streets or in school, but we would never learn Ukrainian. And I found that it's been a ticket to a lot of wonderful opportunities. No, and I, it's been just a sad, sad news every time I hear about Ukraine now, uh, that there, so many people are suffering all over again. And I guess things won't change until God's kingdom is here and things will change. Well, that's when it will change. You know, Irma, here we are. Both of us were part of a refugee status long time ago, and now we see it all repeated all over again. Yes. My mention too is that with Estonians, I have had contact with various people. We have Velo Sar in our area here, who's gone back there. Uh, I know of uh, Yuta Kulbin from California, who's gone over to the Feast of Tabernacles, which you've held in Estonia on the island of Sarama. We've held it on the island of Sarama or in Tartu uh -huh. itself. But I might mention too, one interesting person that 
I've come into contact with is a, a woman who's Estonian who has a similar story to yours. Her father was the head of the SDA Seventh-day Adventist Church in Estonia, from in, in Tallinn. And okay. she too, when the Russians were moving in, the whole family moved west in that same way. And she was mm -hmm. a pro professor of uh, nonprofit studies at uh, Center in Philanthropy. And she actually, because of us having a similar background, we met through another party, were able to uh, talk about nonprofit work. And she and her husband both were members of the board of directors for LifeNets. And that, that's been wonderful. I learned so oh, much from them. Sure. But her, her, she has an interesting story you know, as well. Anyway, uh, Irma, it's been just wonderful talking to you. We appreciate your family and uh, we'll be thinking about you. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here on this podcast. Well, thank you. We thank you, our listeners, for joining us here today for the Cubic Report. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Podbean, which includes information about this podcast, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Pocketcaster, and other podcasting platforms. You can easily find us on any browser address bar by simply typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your impressions and suggestions. So write to us at thecubic at gmail.com, V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.